Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Brian Bergman. He is partner at Nolan Hyman. We're going to talk to him a little bit about what's going on in the cannabis industry, talk about the national scene, talk about California, I'm sure, a little bit. Obviously, lots of kind of changes, lots of complexity. For those of you that have been listening to this program for a while, we've covered various facets of this, but it's it's always a moving target in cannabis in terms of where are we in terms of regulation, where are we going, where are we going in terms of legal frameworks, kind of the regulatory frameworks. And so, you know, I always like kind of of getting up to date with folks. And given the fact that we had, uh, you know, a couple of new states come online, we've got a new administration. I'm, I'm sure we're in for a little bit of a ride in the coming months and quarters as this plays out. Exciting stuff, but important to really kind of wrap your head around it. So with that, Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Yeah, so, well, it's a pleasure. Um, let's do a little background first, and then we can kind of dig into some of the topics that I mentioned. What was your background? How did you, I mean, what, why get into cannabis? What was the backstory? There's, there's always an interesting story, I find, with people that are in the cannabis space. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, you know, mine's probably just like everybody else's, just watching how things change and looking for something new and exciting. I was a litigation attorney for over 15 years, and litigation just really 
really wasn't my bag from a personal perspective. Like I just really didn't feel happy constantly dealing in conflict situations when my goal and real preference was always to try and work things out. And so, but it's really hard when you already start to get used to a certain area of law to practice and to find ways to pivot. And, you know, because we did a lot of civil litigation, I did a lot of entity work as well as um, a lot of other issues with uh, litigation. I got wind early on that California in 2015, 2014 was finally about to bring a new regulatory regime to the cannabis industry, which from 1996 till 2015 or so had been just basically the Wild West for the most part. There wasn't any real true regulation. There were a couple minor acts and a couple things that had to be done just from not-for-profit standpoint and otherwise that people were abusing, but also not clear of how they were supposed to be upfront about things. And and when I heard that they were finally getting around to bringing in a new regulatory regime that was going to be made more like a alcohol supply chain industry with producers and distributors and testing and different entities, I looked around and saw that it was mostly criminal attorneys working in the space at the time and just realized I could have a quick competitive advantage because of the detail-oriented nature and the ability to do business work for clients and such that I just figured it was a great time to look for a transition and I got out there I learned it I started you know getting out and meeting the right people and next thing I know I'm one of the attorneys that regularly teaches the law to other attorneys in California and the United States and it's just been a crazy journey I like to <laughs> joke I like to joke it's like dog years I've been practicing cannabis probably since late 2015 but uh-huh. it feels a lot longer than five years, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like uh, longer an old timer in this industry now. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's been a fun ride. And I recently switched over to Nolan Hyman LLP about two years ago and head up their pra- cannabis practice area. But what's such a great about thing about their firm and our firm, I should say, is that we have a really unique blend of business services that are really awesome, including intellectual property and branding, which is huge for the industry moving forward, the cannabis regulatory work. But then we also have really strong corporate and litigation services as well. But one of the neatest things we offer is my partner, Wendy, is one of the only attorneys in the country that really focuses in on location-based entertainment. And we're very excited about the uh, intersection of cannabis and location-based entertainment, which is essentially any out-of-home entertainment that has a location. It could be anything from a pop-up in a parking lot for a short period of time to a theme park and all the different issues and economic development and issues that go along with doing a project like that. And uh, when you start thinking about it, one of the neat things to me is how, as this continues to become a more normalized industry, that we're really looking at in the next five to 10 years, probably, jurisdictions more and more allowing on-site consumption and lounges, if you will, for cannabis uh, consumption in public places. And then what do you do with people like that? I mean, most of our outdoor, out-of-home entertainment, once it comes back from the pandemic, obviously, is based upon the alcohol industry. And people that imbibe cannabis are not typically looking for the same experiences as those that have been drinking. And so it's going to be really neat and interesting to see how we develop new activities out of home and focus on things that are going to be more interesting to the cannabis users that have more sensory components and less to do with just being in a loud environment and consuming alcohol. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, fascinating. Let me just go back in terms of, uh, as you got into cannabis, I'm always curious with people that, particularly from 
you know, kind of professional services folks that, you know, are operated in other industries and then come into cannabis. Any surprises that you ran into? I mean, obviously there's, you know, it's going to be different, but, you know, as you actually started practicing law on cannabis, anything that stuck out to you as being, ooh, I didn't expect this or, or this was really, you know, a, a different way of doing business or something I didn't think I'd have to deal with? I like to joke that cannabis used to be really referred to as a gateway drug and I feel like now it's more of a gateway business. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. It's been really interesting to see the real spectrum of people that get involved from those that are coming into cannabis with coming from different industries and they have a lot of business experience or maybe they're coming from like a marketing and agency perspective or those that literally just are like, I finally feel inspired to want to start a new type of business and I want it to be cannabis because it's exciting and new and uh, not really knowing exactly what it is to run a fully regulated operation. And so it or those legacy operators that were able to do it one way before regulations came in, but when it was legal within their states, but are now trying to comply with what places like California, for instance, can be incredibly detailed and robust regulations that require a lot of minefields to navigate. So it's, um, and costs for that matter. Yeah. So that's been interesting to me is just to see the differing levels of preparedness and sophistication that you really get a wide spectrum of. I wasn't necessarily expecting that as much as it happened, but it's exciting because you get to work with so many different types of people as a result. But yes, there's also the other big one is how many times people say, well, this is cannabis, so it is different. And there is definitely some uniqueness to the industry. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, you are still running a business. You still need to be operating and running that business in an organized fashion in a way that is going to work for you and your people. And and it's uh, it's not as different as some people like to think it is. It's just sometimes there might be special quirks to the deal making, but it's not. It's still a business. It's still an industry. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned this whole location-based entertainment, kind of uh, dealing with that from a legal and from an operational point of view. I mean, just give us a sense of like why, I mean, you know, we, we've got bars everywhere, right? Like you can go down the street and you can have a drink of alcohol. You know, cannabis is still very much, uh, some states you still have to go and get a medical card. You have to go to a dispensary. You have to give your, you know, ID, fill out forms, register yourself. You know, there's limits on how much you can take. I mean, there's, you know, it's a very different experience. I mean, do you see the alcohol model as being something that's going to get adopted in some way, shape, and form for cannabis? Or how, give me a sense of how, how you compare alcohol as a highly you know, mature industry with you know, supply chains and regulatory structures and things like that we don't want to think about, but we don't have that in cannabis. How do you think that's going to play well, out? We do in some states. In other states, we do not. And that's okay. just what you were talking about earlier in the intro about the patchwork. Every state has its own way of dealing with things. And, so, and because it's still federally illegal right now, and we can kind of talk about that more later if you'd like, yeah. Uh, but because of that, there's a real lack of guidance from federal agencies. I mean, people always like to talk about how the there's no bankruptcy protections just because it's federally illegal. So there's no federal bankruptcy protections. You know, we're not getting a lot of pesticide guidance from the EPA because it's federally illegal. So they just don't give the guidance for what's safe to be putting on cannabis right now. I mean, those are some simple examples. But then you have each and every state that has their own way of doing with things. And some states like Colorado have already started to toy with the with some regulations in place for on-site consumption, I believe. But California has created the pathway through Prop 64, for instance. And California, like you said, it has really developed that 
supply chain model. You have to get licensed if you are a producer, which is a either a cultivator or someone that manufactures cannabis products, which means anything other than growing it, they're they're making a product by changing the flower into some other product, whether that would be a topical, a solve, an edible infused with cannabis or a drink or whatever it could be, it has to go through the regulations for manufacturers. And then you have a distributor who has to move the product amongst the different supply chain licensees and make sure it's tested and quality controlled and all of this before it gets to the retailer, which is the person that gets it to the end patient or consumer, either through a storefront or delivery. So there's already like a full separated supply chain for licenses with rules and regulations for each activity. And the state does have availabilities for lounges in California, but it's all based upon the local jurisdictions in California allowing it and regulating it and providing a pathway for it. West Hollywood here in Los, near Los Angeles was famous for being one of the first cities to really open their doors to the idea of lounges and one very famously open for a short period of time. I think it's still open at this point, but it might have changed hands at this stage. But the real problem with West Hollywood was they took a lot of the license applications without having a property attached to the license application. So a lot of the people that got awarded the lounge license still have not been able to open, whether because they didn't have a lease, couldn't get a lease, or because other regulations were making it more difficult because they weren't well thought through in terms of feeding people at the same time that they're being allowed to consume or otherwise and the different rules that go with that. So it's still very early as to how it's going to look and what it's going to do. And what other cities are starting to look at is, okay, if we're going to allow consumptions and we're going to allow lounges, how's that going to look? Are they going to be allowed to eat food there? Are they only going to be allowed to smoke? How are we going to want to affect that and how are we going to allow for that? And then after you finally get that in place, what do you do with them then? Because you want them to be in part of a development if you're thinking more broadly and how you can create jobs and create opportunities for the locale, which is really what the local jurisdictions are worried about and concerned is how do we make more money for our citizens, taxes for our cities and jobs, etc. And how do we do it in a way that we can control it and regulate it? Those that are going to be looking at how to build not just the opportunity for consumption, but also the what are we going to do in the area around it is it's a really unique discussion that has not really been fully developed yet. And another thing I don't see is tours, you know, like you think about the wine industry and Mm -hmm. one of the neatest things to do is come out to California, for instance, I'm sorry, I keep using his example, but I'm from here. Uh, But you come out to California or Oregon and you go and tour some wineries. You get to see how the wines are made. You get to talk and ask your questions. And then you get to taste the different wines that are grown and you get to have a real experience around it and pick what you like. Well, you know, they don't do that yet, but eventually you're hoping to get something similar for cannabis cultivators. And then how does that work with leaving the location afterwards, prevent intoxicated uh, driving? How do you, you know, what if they're tourism and what do you do to prevent it going across state lines because it's still federally illegal? Lots of little questions that still need to be worked out, but fascinating new areas to go in. I mean, I think that entertainment and location uses and branding are two of the big future points for this industry and big moments. Do you, do you think that, you know, certain, you know, cities, municipalities will sort of take this as a competitive advantage and, and just get ahead on these things to be some of the first ones to really establish this and, you know, be kind of, you know, game changers on this? Or how do, how do you think this is going to play out? I think that's definitely how it needs to go. And those that are working directly with their municipalities to do so are in good shape. I don't think you're going to be able to go into a bigger, larger city like a LA, San Francisco, Portland, New York, whatever, and, you know, try and start a major movement movement in a larger city like that, I think that going to a smaller city that is open to the idea of safe cannabis consumption 
consumption and open to the idea of cannabis being a solid industry within their jurisdiction is a great opportunity to really work together to try and work it out and show it how it's done. And there's certainly some smaller studies doing that. I like to compare it to Disneyland and Orlando, Disney World. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my partner mentioned that to me the other day, and it's a really great analogy. I mean, when Orlando first got the rights to Disney World, it was Swampland. And they had a yeah. whole plan to turn it into this mecca and destination for Disney. And look what it did to the city there. And Orlando and Disney are pretty inextricably intertwined yeah. these days. And you can definitely find some municipalities with the proper planning and relationships that wouldn't mind being potentially a cannabis mecca. Yeah. Let's talk about kind of the state of the world at this point, because we've ha- we have had, you know, some interesting changes. Uh, I think we mentioned that, you know, we had a couple of states come online. We have a new administration. There's several different aspects to the current sort of federal posture around cannabis that could change that would then change how the industry is playing out. What, what are you focusing on the most? What, what do you think might happen when and how is that going to change the way we operate as an industry? Oh, if I had that crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if I'd want to stay a lawyer at that point. Um, <laughs> Different business model, yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> but I think that You will see some telling moments within this first year of the new administration, the fact that it's now a democratic-controlled government across all three branches. I think that it's quite possible we can see some changes. I don't know how quickly it will happen, and just because the Democrats have a simple majority in the Senate, that doesn't necessarily mean they have the necessary votes from Republicans to get over the voting limits to really push things through the Senate. I know we've seen recently from Congress, we've had the MORE Act and the Safe at Banking Act get passed, but then not make it through Senate. And I don't know how quickly those things are going to change, but I know the majority for the Senate is talking about wanting to make that a priority. We can wait and see. I wouldn't be more surprised if we saw, I also heard recently there was a discussion to move and reschedule instead of deschedule cannabis from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, which would take it out of 280E purview and the IR internal revenue code system, which would be really good for taxation structures and banking purposes. And so that could be an interesting move as well. So I think that we're probably over the next year or so, we'll see how much of a mandate there is for sweeping cannabis changes federally. But I do think we're going to see at the very least some smaller steps that would be very useful and beneficial to these businesses, really banking and taxation, even if you could just get some changes in the way these businesses are treated at that level would make a huge, huge difference. But overall, I think everybody's pretty bullish at the moment and excited to see what's going to happen in the next two years. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think, yes, there's, I think everyone is expecting or at least hoping there's going to be some changes, yeah, whether it's banking or, you know, whether we go so far as actually changing um, some of the tax code stuff and some of the um, actually scheduling of cannabis. But from a industry point of view, I mean, I guess I think most people are, you know, realize it's not going to be like we get something, if we get cannabis rescheduled or descheduled, you know, like it's not all of a sudden I'm not going to be able to start buying Humboldt County weed on my corner, you know, on the corner store here, right? Like there's, there's going to be structural elements of the industry that need to kind of flex and change. And, and these states that have invested so heavily into setting up their, you know, local cannabis industries, you know, are not going to just drop all the, the, their borders and open up commerce to everything and everyone. How, how do you really see this? Or what are some of the things that you anticipate 
you know, kind of needing to get figured out or shaping, you know, as we develop the, you know, a, a federal cannabis industry, what are some of the things that are probably going to be in place there? Yeah, you know, you actually took the words right out of my mouth about what the next real challenge is going to be. And that is, you're absolutely correct that just because we may have a change at the federal level does not mean that suddenly that's going to ameliorate or change the patchwork of state and local regulations that every state has. You're absolutely correct. And that is the big challenge. I think that one of the big things that we are going to be waiting to see and have to see, and I hope to see from just a federal level, is just some basic standard <laughs> guidance. I'd love to see that similar to what they did with the with hemp when they descheduled hemp, which is basically certain qualifications of cannabis that have less than 0.3% THC. And your audience is probably fairly sophisticated on this, so I don't have to go into too detailed about the. That's fine, yeah. But really with hemp, what they've done and they're still dealing with is they've at least allowed for free movement across state lines of hemp products. And, you know, subject to getting certain protocols in place for the U.S. Department of Agriculture to actually approve the state regulations and everything. I think from the federal level, what we should be really looking for is just manifest and clear overarching guideline. Bankruptcy protections are going to be allowed. Banking is going to be allowed. Taxation is going to be treated like other businesses with normal deductions. I mean, if you can get those things in place, interstate commerce is going to be permissible, but still allowing for inter intrastate regulation to take place. I feel like that'll help the industry normalize itself to a larger extent, but it's not going to be a quick and painless change at all. You're still going to have to, even if you do have a business that you run in, say, New York or Oregon or California, you're still going to have to make sure that everything you're doing within that state is still compliant. And if you're talking about moving or trying to franchise across multiple states, which is something that you really should be questioning right now still, given it's still federally illegal, mm -hmm. you got to really think about how different it's going to be and how much control and effort there is to exert or how much trust you're placing into your in-state partners. And I yeah. think that's going to be a really big focal point is really how to navigate trying to be a multi-state operator and the fact that it is going to continue to be so different from state to state. Yeah, I mean, like thinking about it operationally, it kind of makes your head spin because right now you've got if you're a multi-state operator, you have multiple operations in different states that have different regulatory frameworks, different testing requirements, like it's a whole different structure. And then federally, if this comes in, you know, it's not like you can just start moving this product across the line because, you know, now I've got incongruous, incongruous kind of regulatory testing operation. It could be a real rat's nest in terms of disentangling all the different logistical, um, you know, uh, requirements that that come into play. I mean, at some point, I may just say I'm just going to keep my local operation. I'm not going to bother trying to cross state lines because it's going to be too complicated for me. But then, then where are we? That's still where you should be. <laughs> yeah, I hate to say it. I know it's really good to be able to grow out, but if you're going to, if I were talking about being a multi-state operator right yeah. now, I'd be advising my clients. Okay, but it should be little fiefdoms in each state right now, um, yeah. where you're basically almost autonomous in many ways. I mean, you can certainly have different operations in place for you know maybe certain standard operating procedures or standard look and feels of intellectual property and branding that you like to do, or there can be certain things that maybe you want to have that can be easily done across different lines, but there's going to still be a ton that's got to be unique to each state, and there's got to yeah. be 
the operators within those states, they're going to know it. I am really curious to see if and when there is a change in scheduling where state interstate trans- transactions are allowed. It is going to be a, one of the first interesting things is going to be is how much are states going to communicate with each other and how mm. much guidance is the government going to give in terms of if you're going to have to have one testing regime for federal government and then another testing regime for each state, are they going to do it that way? Are they going to normalize it so it's going to just be whatever the federal government requests? Is it going to have to be like you just said, every single state you go into, once you cross those lines, are you being hit with apportionment taxes, even if you ju- if you sold a single product through those lines? Are you going to be hit with uh, testing regulations, and do you have to do different testing and get different labeling for each state? I, it's It's going to be... Very interesting to watch how this lays out. And it's still so soon because we don't even have uh, everybody keeps saying, well, now we're all Democrat. This is happening. And I'm not making a political (laughs) statement one way or the other. But I don't think this is so clear. And I don't think it's so clear that we're going to immediately see a massive change federally. I wouldn't be surprised if this is still a little more piecemeal bit by bit with just little changes here and there still. No, I agree. I work with some companies and, and, and talk to folks who are even like um, like packaging. Like if you know, start running like high-speed packaging lines, I mean, you need a certain volume. And while an MSO may have that volume you know, across three or four states, individually they can't. And so I've been doing crazy things like putting packing machines and you know, tractor trailers that you can roll across state lines without product in it. You know, and then you can do the packaging. And so you can sort of move equipment you know, across state lines, but not have to move the product. And the, the gymnastics that ends up getting... Um, put in place for some of these companies is really fascinating. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite curious. I mean, it, it's somewhat job security for me <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of the strategic figuring out that has to happen, so that's good. But, yeah, it, it just, it seems like as bullish as I think everyone is on, you know, changes on the regulatory side, on the legal side, on the federal level, you know, it is not a panacea and is not just going to immediately solve, you know, all these challenges we have. And in fact, it might actually increase them for some period of time. I mean, as, as you look at these different markets, I mean, I know that you've got kind of particular experts expertise in California. I mean, I guess is California or do you see California as being kind of the model that will drive things or, or why or why not? Yeah, give us some insights. Well, I was too quick to say no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> California is the biggest market. Yes. California is going to have a massive say. There's no question. I also think that in many respects, California jumped the gun and overregulated too much in some ways and not enough in other ways. And I think some other states like Oklahoma, for instance, I sort of get jealous sometimes. They took a more hands-off regulatory approach where they wanted to make sure they got the legal market in, established, and now they're as they're going, they're figuring what do we need to regulate, what do we not, and they're putting in their regulations as they go versus California that immediately just without thinking about what it was going to be created these massive testing limits down to these very minuscule trace amounts of testing that when you don't even have the proper equipment or solve uh, testing solubles to even properly do the limits that California is requiring. And it's creating a lot of distrust with the testing system in California, for instance, and a lot of issues with compliance. And you've also, you've got other things where a lot of these cities were like, oh, great, this is going to make a ton of money. Let's hit everybody with these local taxes. Then we've got the state taxes. Then you've got the federal 280E taxes and everything else that comes on that a lot of the regulations that everybody's trying to come in with, the cities or the state regulation, uh, regulatory bodies that are giving out these licenses, they're having to go through so many steps that they're understaffed to do it and they're not necessarily sure what they're looking for and it's creating massive delays in even getting licensed. People are sitting on properties and paying obscene rent values for years waiting to get going. 
and in some instances out here. And it's and there's still a lot of jurisdictions that haven't implemented local cities and counties that haven't implemented any sort of licensing regimes whatsoever. So it's limiting what the industry can do as well. So there's so many different hoops to jump through in California that it's going to be a long time before it really becomes a mature and established market that people are going to look to. That being said, this is still the biggest market with some of you know, the most amazing sun-grown quality out here in many respects. And a lot of the indoor from Southern California as well is very well thought of throughout the state. And those that visit think so as well. And so it's kind of an interesting thing because California is the mecca, but it's also a very difficult market to navigate. So whether it's going to be the leader, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's going to be the 800-pound gorilla then where does an 800 yeah. pound gorilla sit wherever it wants? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. But is that necessarily where you want to be starting your business and working things out? It's a good question because, yeah. yeah, great opportunity, but great difficulties. Yeah, I'm curious as you look at some of these other markets, some of the other states that have set up different programs, whether it's, you know, the licensing or the regulatory or the testing, anything of note that you've been, you know, curious or following, you know, other experience experiments that that states have been running that, you know, kind of changed the game a little bit? I'm watching Nevada pretty closely right now. I think that Nevada with their strong interest in tourism might be much quicker to get the uh, location-based entertainment uh-huh. experiments up and running for cannabis and cannabis lounges. And it should be interesting to see what they do yeah. in their state. I think that that's one that I'm watching very carefully just because, like I said, that's just a neat aspect of this to me. But in terms of just licensing and regulations and everything, it's I used to pay close attention and compare, and I used to even watch how it was comparing to Canada. And yeah. after a while, I, I just it becomes so difficult to continuously watch each and every different change that it's almost like, well, I need to pay attention to it when it becomes something that is of interest. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. because everybody's going about it their own way and everybody thinks they know. I mean, every cultivator you talk to thinks that they grow in the best manner possible. Uh, <laughs> every city thinks that every state thinks that, you know, they're putting the best regime in place based upon what their citizens need. Every city thinks that they're doing what's important for their constituents. And it's so unique to each area, a geographical area, that it's, it's just so hard to say what's interesting and what's not and what's a gold standard. I, I'm, I'm just sort of just watching. It, it's yeah. also hard because there's so many different population sizes, too. I mean, with yeah. some of the eastern states where they're just doing a few state-awarded licenses, those are probably, once they get up and running, implementing and moving a lot easier, but you can't bring that to western states as a model. It just wouldn't yeah. work. So yeah. it's hard to say which one way is best when it's so different for each area that is focusing on trying to do this. And that goes back to our earlier point. How do we really watch how this patchwork is going to ever solidify into a single picture and mass? And I think we're very far away from that still. And, yeah. I, and I think that that's the tempering to the enthusiasm that you know we have to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, not to get too philosophical, but it is. It's kind of it's kind of what the uh, original, you know, founding members of the U.S. you know kind of designed, right? Which is a series of states that run kind of different experiments. They do things their way over time. That gets normalized eventually. Kind of the federal government standardizes some of the stuff to make interstate operability, you know, a little easier. But you know, it's kind of the nature of the U.S. setup, right? Is that we we have states that have power that can decide to do things differently. And you know, that's to me is something that I think that is going to be really interesting to see and do, and it, it kind of goes more to kind of bridge lines by doing it that way, by letting it go by state as opposed to having federal government step in. As long as you take away the controls that are completely hindering those experiments from fully 
takes yeah. place. I mean, if, if the federal government, I don't think, needs to make that decision whether to allow it for the state. I think it is still a state issue. I mean, if you look at down ballot issues right now, I think it was Bill Maher or someone similar to like that that recently said, if you look at down ballot issues and what middle America is interested, it's the three M's. It's uh, Medicare, minimum wage and marijuana. And mm-hmm. across the board, voters seem to be very interested in protecting their salaries and their jobs, making sure they have health care and getting rights to cannabis. It seems yeah. to be a, uh, and the job creators that that is. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see that those seem to be pretty common requirements and needs across our country. And it'd be interesting to fo- see a party focus on that more. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's interesting times. Interesting times I ran. Ryan, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Oh, well, happy to do that. I mean, I have my LinkedIn account. You can always find me on LinkedIn, but we, our website is nolanheiman.com. That's N-O-L-A-N-H-E-I, M as in Mary, A-N as in Nancy, N as in Nancy, nolanheiman.com. And my email address is my first initial last name, bbergman at nolanheiman.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions. I love talking about this industry and I just love hearing what people are doing and finding ways to help them. It's really been so much fun. That's great. I'll make sure that the links and information are in the show notes so people can get that. Contact you. Brian, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Bruce. I had a great time. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.